Hello, my friends. Lots to talk about today. A great question put to the Alberta Premier about, well, I'll let you see it yourself. First, she apologizes to everyone who was unvaccinated and bullied by the government. But then she goes further. I'll, I'll let you watch the video for yourself. Very exciting show today. And I want to invite you to get the video version of this podcast. Go to rebelnewsplus.com. Click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month. And you get the video version, which is five days a week I do this show, and we have four weekly shows, so it's 36 episodes a month, just for eight bucks. But it supports Rebel News because we don't take any government money, and so we really need your support. Please go to rebelnewsplus.com. All right, here's today's show. Tonight, why does Rebel News send reporters to faraway globalist meetings? It's October 24th, and this is the Ezra LeVant Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. Rebel News. Just over the weekend, did you see it? Our reporter, Celine Glass, asked the best question of the entire press conference for the new Premier of Alberta, Danielle Smith. And the best question got the best answer. Here, look at the entire exchange. Hi, Ms. Smith. Celine Gallas from Rebel News. During your campaign, you said that not only would you issue an apology to those prosecuted during COVID restrictions, but you would also grant them amnesty. When can we expect those apologies? Um, I can apologize right now. I'm, I'm, I'm deeply sorry for anyone who was inappropriately subjected to um, discrimination as a result of their vaccine status. I'm deeply sorry for any government employee that was fired from their job because of their vaccine status. And I welcome them back if they want to come back. As for the amnesty, I have to get some legal advice on that. Um, and so I've already asked my staff to, um, to, to request that advice so I can see how we would be able to proceed on that. My view has been that these were um, political decisions that were made, and so I think that they can be political decisions to offer a reversal. But I, I do want to get some, some legal advice on that first. Would that also have to do with the timeline for the proposed amnesties? Um, I, I, I would have to see if you know if I can if I can do it. I will do it at the earliest opportunity. So I'm, I'm hoping within the next within the next week I'll get that legal advice. Thank you. Thank you. I'll talk more about that later in the show, and we'll interview Celine. I thought that was very exciting. Nearly a million people watched that video over the weekend, and it was shared around the world in many languages as people in many countries said, hey, we need our governments to apologize for discriminating against the unvaccinated too. More on that later. So Rebel News was in the house in Edmonton on the weekend, and we've been in Ottawa, also in a house, a rented Airbnb, which is our temporary studio in that city, right next to the Trucker Commission. Fascinating revelations coming every day from that Trucker Commission of Inquiry. Here's some highlights from today. By the way, Sheila Gunn-Reed has been doing excellent live tweeting of the commission, and every night we do a conversation, a live stream about what happened that day. So here are some clips from today. Nobody had ever experienced this this group coming into an area. Ottawa on the 28th of January was the first experience in that. 
So I do know that following this, there was, there has been extensive changes internally and, and people have seen a definitive change in our response based on our experience. But across the country, uh, police leaders identified that they now had an, um, a scope of what their experience could anticipated to be with this group. Before they arrived on the 28th, we had no experience and all of the experience as they moved across was that they were lawful and that they indicated they were coming to lawfully, lawfully protest in Ottawa. That experience package changed for us on the 28th. Somebody sent um, information to the former chief directly. Uh, somebody wrote, I lay awake tonight as I read Twitter posts from the extreme right vowing attacks on Rideau Hall this weekend. Some are calling for action akin to the happenings in Washington on Capitol Hill. I understand the right to peaceful protest, but I'm writing as a very concerned citizen as we're not hearing any reassurances from the city of policing uh, regarding the safety of residents surrounding these vulnerable and targeted spots. There was national security representatives, including CSIS uh, and the RCMP in our joint intelligence group. So again, this was information that was taken in, assessed, evaluated, uh, as put towards our threat assessment. And, and ultimately this didn't bore, bear out to be, to be accurate. There was no threats made against Rideau Hall. Chief Slowly, as as this meeting went on, um, expressed reservations about the reasons for which the OPP were present. Um, he identified that he had concerns with them that on a, about a couple of things. One of them was about the recording of numbers uh, of OPP members that had been provided to us. Um, and another one was whether they were here uh, to help or to, to assess and potentially overtake us was was my impression. It was um, it was a contentious meeting that um, did not I don't believe formed a, a good start first meeting in in what I believe needed to be a very strong partnership. But as you may know, we've just come back from the Berlin Conference of the World Health Organization called the World Health summit, thousands of delegates from nearly 200 countries meeting to chew over the pandemic, talk about a new international pandemic treaty, and generally rejoice in their new power over you and me. Uh, we had five staff there, three on-air reporters and two producers and editors to help them out. Tamara, Alexa, Andrea, just amazing. Got a lot more footage to come from them too. And very soon we'll show you the news from another globalist gathering, this one called the C40 Summit. David Menzies talked a bit about them earlier this summer. Here's a flashback to that. So I was most curious to come across a document called C40 Cities, subtitled, quote, a global network of mayors taking urgent action to confront the climate crisis and create a future where everyone can thrive, end quote. Now, as an aside, I'm so confused here. Are we currently living through a climate crisis or a climate emergency, or is that a climate disaster? I mean, can't the Greta Thunberg acolyte settle on one consistent scare word when it's attached to the word climate? How dare you? But back to the C40, which is not thankfully a type of explosive. Rather, it is a collection of almost 100 mayors of major cities 
who, you know, jet set to Copenhagen or wherever and assemble like the mighty Avengers, except none of these cats have any superpowers. Here's an excerpt from their PR video. I wonder how much carbon was used to produce this opus. I hear people say, your future's bright. But after this past year, I wonder if that's still true. When I see the news, sometimes I'm overwhelmed. What's going to happen to my family, to our planet, to the animals, to my friends, to me? Make no mistake. We are in the midst of the fight for our lives, for our planet, our people, and our shared future. Hmm. Cutting emissions in half by 2030, eh? In less than eight years, right? Well, as ex-Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne would say, that's a stretch goal. And that last line in the video about changing the trajectory our planet is on, you know, that sounds like a job for Superman, not a bunch of very ordinary politicians. I mean, come on, Toronto Mayor John Tory is somehow going to change the planet's trajectory? Give me a break. I mean, back in 2020, it took Mayor Milktoast three weeks to clear a bunch of hobos operating under the banner of Afro-Indigenous Rising out of Nathan Phillips Square. And once they were booted from the grounds of City Hall, they merely marched northwest to Dufferin Grove Park and turned that parkland into a hellhole for a good chunk of the summer, too. Uh, we were there for cleanup time. Check it out. Oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm just reading your breast. What does that say exactly? It says, no justice, no peace. So the mayor's against meat. The mayor's against using carbon. Oh, but they don't mean for themselves. Their big mayor's convention is in beautiful Buenos Aires, Argentina. That's a long jet flight from just about anywhere. And no, they're not eating beyond meat veggie burgers, I can assure you. So we're going to give you the coverage from there. Two of our journalists, Lincoln Jay from Ontario and Katie Davis-Court from Seattle, went down there, but... Not first class, they went economy class the whole way. But why? Why would we do that? I, I was thinking about that over the weekend, and I wrote a three-page memo to our entire staff explaining my thinking and what I think is the value of these trips to our viewers. So, frankly, I propose just to literally read to you my memo. I know reading a memo might sound boring, but I want to tell you exactly what I told our team. We need to explain how Rebel News will cover this differently than the media party would to make the case that it's important that we're there because we will ask questions that no one else would and that, frankly, the mayors don't want asked. Why is it important that we're there? Why is it important that any media go at all? And why must that media be independent citizen journalists who take no government funds? Because this C40 conference is the essential globalist strategy, create laws and policies outside of local, sovereign, legal, accountable city councils, City councils are bad enough. They're usually left-wing, often corrupt, and generally awful. But by taking the mayors out of them and jetting off to a faraway meeting, the globalists achieve a few things. Like Davos, like UN conferences, C40 is outside the democratic structures that are designed to ask, act as checks and balances on politicians. At least at city councils, you have debates, you have transcripts of debates, you have committee hearings where the public can give input, you have public agendas with notice given to the people, you have a press corps, 
with some sort of institutionalized access to politicians and documents and plans and agendas. You have lobbyist registries. People can see things. None of that happens at these globalist getaways. So instead of what little transparency and checks and balances our city councils have, you have private oligarch-designed conclaves, secret, privately curated, billionaires. I mean, look at this list of sponsors. Soros's Open Society is one of them. There's no lobbyist registry. It's all lobbyists. It's all dark money. It's all billionaire agendas. There is no open debate or discussion, no way for citizens to be involved. It's a private club that you're not invited to. What kind of mayor would agree to go to that and would go there to do the city's business in secret in, in a foreign land, taking direction from foreign billionaires and lobbyists? So the process is corrupt. It is inherently democratically illegitimate. Even to go there is to thumb your nose at local democracy to say you value foreign oligarchs' opinions more than you value your own neighbors and voters. But of course, it's not just an undemocratic world government process. It's the substance. Imagine the hubris of jetting to Buenos Aires and staying at a luxury hotel paid for by billionaire patrons while concocting plans to make the little people use less energy. Outrageous. But part of the psychological effect upon the mayors and their staff who attend is to create an elite consciousness that these are the special world-class elites, the elevated ones, the high-minded ones who need to meet in the clean, pure, curated places, far from the dirty peasants, far from the nosy journalists, far from any alt-right, racist, transphobic, MAGA opponents who just don't get it. It's to create a kind of split personality amongst the mayors who go to it. They live in the dirty streets when they're back in their city councils where they have to go through the motions of being democratically accountable. But then, every once in a while, they get to jet their way to a privileged getaway with the other people who really matter, where they can drop the pretense of having to listen to the little people and be amongst the Illuminati who just want to get things done and know the right way, the utopians who don't have time for the people. That's why we're going. Because we are amongst the very few journalists in the entire world who believe in local and national sovereignty, who believe in popular democracy, not oligarchic elitism. And we are skeptical of the inherently communist scheme to revolutionize the entire energy economy and create mass energy poverty for the many, but private jet getaways for the few. That's my philosophy for why we go to UN events or other globalist conclaves. We need to shine a light of public scrutiny on them. We need to ask the so-called Democrats why they're participating in secret meetings with secret funders rather than using our democratic institutions at home. And we need to challenge the absolute BS ideas they propose. Don't use energy, don't eat real food, depopulate the world, oligarchs over Democrats, etc. So let's make sure, I wrote to our staff, that we explain why it's important Rebel News is there. And by that, I mean to explain why our coverage is different from what anyone else would do and is so necessary. So that's my memo. I think that's why we care about these meetings. It's why we went to the World Health Organization in Berlin. It's why we're going next month to the UN's Global Warming Convention in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Because imagine the audacity of flying by jet to Egypt. It's the only way to get there. And staying in a high-energy conference center. Imagine how much air conditioning is needed there. It was 30 degrees Celsius there today. I checked. And the luxury lifestyle. There were, are no electric cars there. It's all limousines and SUVs. Imagine flying there and agreeing with other grandees to tax farmers and tax truckers and other poor schleps. Imagine that split personality necessary to do that. Away from local democratic scrutiny, away from a free and open media, away from checks and balances, just private clubs paid for by big corporations and oligarchs. 
Did you know I'm hurting oligarchs' feelings by saying this? <laughs> Here's a clip from a UK radio station called LBC. Take a look at this. His business, they seem to be globalists. They don't seem to love England. And you point out the furlough. Well, we actually see it differently. He gave away £400 billion and practically bankrupted our economy over the idiotic furlough payment. He did not and bankrupt allow, uh, the economy. That's just that's factually the, incorrect. The, the, he There's did not so bankrupt damage. the economy. Also, may nearly, I ask you, hang nearly, on, Jerry, nearly. Jerry, as we carry on, through, this is very important, Jerry, as we carry on this conversation, please don't use the phrase globalist again, because many of my Jewish listeners will find that incredibly offensive um, because it has also been used at times as uh, a racist put down to the Jewish community. So so carry on, Jerry. Uh, answer on, my if you wouldn't mind that's answering... That's not true. That's not true. I, I don't mean Jewish. If I meant Jewish, I'd say Jewish. I, I did not... Is somebody who Jerry, international... Jerry, once more, I'm going to give you one more chance. I have explained to you that many members of the Jewish community are offended by that phrase. Please do not use it. Please answer my question. You say... Oh, so criticising the word globalist is incredibly offensive because it's a racist put down to Jews? What a wicked lie, a racist lie in itself. She's the bigot. She's the one with a preposterous insult that to criticize anti-democratic oligarchs is to naturally criticize Jews. That's a stereotypical prejudice. It would be as outrageous as telling someone not to talk about crime because that would be inherently anti-black. Huh. There are some globalist billionaires who are Jews and many who are not. Bill Gates is not. Jeffrey Bezos is not. George Soros was born a Jew but essentially renounced it and actually helped the Nazis round up Jews when he was a teenager in Hungary during the Second World War. I think he's a both a Jew and an anti-Semite, which is quite a trick, but calling him a globalist is not a reference to whatever vestige of Judaism he has. It's a reference to his belief that world governments and globalist organizations like his own can trump what mere local citizens want. We go to these globalist conferences because someone has to be there to show what's going on. You know, I was talking to Lincoln Jay, our reporter who was there in Buenos Aires, and he told me that at one point they were literally the only journalists in the room, Lincoln and Katie. I mean, seriously, who would fly all the way to Argentina to report on what some mayors have to say? But after a few days, the organizers knew we had tough questions, not just puffballs. And so they literally would not let our reporters ask questions, even though it was question time and they were the first and only reporters at the microphones. And that's something you need to see, too, and you will when we publish the videos from Buenos Aires. So that's why we do what we do in other countries. We travel economy class. We try to keep our costs modest. Look, we cover things in Canada a lot, but we fly around the world sometimes because that's how you track your politicians these days. If you think you can hold them to account by simply going to City Hall or Parliament, you're wrong. Because more and more, your life is being ruled not by local elected politicians, but by clubby billionaires at foreign junkets and the politicians they like to collect. Stay with us for more. Well, I was in Edmonton for a few days last week. I was there for the debut, uh, the Edmonton premiere of our latest documentary called Ungovernable about uh, separatist or independence movements in Alberta. Very interesting movie. But while I was out there, I thought, well, I'm going to stick around for the annual general meeting of the United Conservative Party. Are they actually going to be united? Are they actually going to be conservative? Those are real questions 
given what happened under Jason Kenney's brief and troubled reign of that party. The new leader, the new premier, Danielle Smith, had a tough job. She won the leadership with just, I think, 54% to 46%. It went several ballots. And of course, her caucus and her cabinet, well, they were, they were Jason Kenney's people and senior people ran against her, including Travis Taves, the finance minister under Kenny. You might recall there was a moment where all of her opponents together had a press conference denouncing her, and now she's the boss. How's that going to work? Well, it actually looks like it's working out okay. I listened to some of her uh, keynote remarks, and I'll just play you a quick clip. Not only did she meet with every single MLA for about an hour, which is a, a, a lot of meetings. She seems to have cobbled together uh, her rivals, a team of rivals, as Abraham Lincoln called his cabinet. I want to play you a clip from her speech, uh, which I thought was uh, the most encouraging part, where she talked about how she's going to have an Alberta first mentality, which I think every province should have, uh, not because Alberta is better than any province, um, I, I don't think that's the Alberta way of thinking, but because Alberta is no less than any other province, no less than Ontario, no less than Quebec. And if Quebec can have a Quebec first policy, which it has for two generations, surely Alberta can do the same. Here's an excerpt from Danielle Smith's keynote speech this weekend. Our Alberta is one of the most prosperous places on earth one of the great bastions of freedom and liberty anywhere, where people come from all over Canada and all over the world to build their dreams. This province is worth fighting for, no matter what the media or the woke Twitter mob throw at us. If we stay united, if we stay true to the strength and values of Manning and Lougheed and Klein, we will inevitably prevail. So join with me. Let's get to work. Let's show Albertans what we've got. Let's beat the NDP resoundingly in 2023. And let's make sure Alberta always remains strong and free. Well, that was a good speech, and I was impressed with the unity, and I think she did very well. But the best was yet to come. In my mind, the most important thing that Danielle Smith said was not part of her speech, but rather it was a question put to her by a young Rebel News reporter, Celine Glass, and her answer to it. In fact, it was a back-and-forth exchange. Let me play the entire thing for you now. Take a look. Hi, Ms. Smith. Alice from Rebel News. During your campaign, you said that not only would you issue an apology to those prosecuted during COVID restrictions, but you would also grant them amnesty. When can we expect those apologies? Um, I can apologize right now. I'm, I'm, I'm deeply sorry for anyone who was inappropriately subjected to um, discrimination as a result of their vaccine status. I'm deeply sorry for any government employee that was fired from their job because of their vaccine status. And I welcome them back if they want to come back. As for the amnesty, I have to get some legal advice on that. Um, and so I've already asked my staff to, um, to, to request that advice so I can see how we would be able to proceed on that. My view has been that these were um, political decisions that were made, and so I think that they can be political decisions to offer a reversal. But I, I do want to get some, some legal advice on that first. Would that also have to do with the timeline for the proposed amnesties? Um, I, I, I would have to see if you know if I can if I can do it. I will do it at the earliest opportunity. So I'm, I'm hoping within the next within the next week I'll get that legal advice. Thank you. Thank you. Interesting. There's a lot of interesting things here. Of course, the apology. I think that is the first apology 
given by the head of a significant political jurisdiction, in this case, a province of almost 5 million people. The first and hopefully not the last as the world realizes what it did in terms of violating civil liberties. But the second part of that was even more interesting. As you know, we've collected nearly 20,000 petition signatures at LockdownAmnesty.com. Please add your name. And that reporter who put those questions, I think that was the best question asked of the premier, was Celine Glass, who came to Rebel News' attention when she practically volunteered to cover the trucker convoy embedded in the journey from Calgary to Ottawa in January. Joining us now via Skype from our Calgary PA Adair is Celine Glass. Celine, congratulations. I think that was the story of the day. And that video has been seen nearly one million times on Twitter alone. Yeah, it's it's really impressive, actually, how many folks that this has reached in such a, a short amount of time. And I mean, reading the comments, too, like it it's made me quite emotional over the last few days since um, this press conference that took place in Edmonton happened. Just seeing people say that, you know, this is what they've been waiting for um, for the years. I mean, COVID happened for years. This was in a couple of months. People were locked down, shut down. They were told no. They lost jobs. People people lost their lives, you know, for stuff like this. So to have a politician come forward and apologize for, I mean, she wasn't even in uh, in power at that time either. So she is basically apologizing on behalf of the people that in the first place put these regulations and restrictions into um, into place. So I thought that was pretty big of her. I think so too. And, you know, she did offer the jobs back to people who were sacked from the public service. So there is that. But I think that it wasn't even a financial thing. It wasn't even a justice thing. It was just a moral recognition of the wrongs that have been done. And I think I think a lot of people really wanted to hear that. I saw some of the reaction to the tweets that Rebel News did of your video. And there was an emotional gratitude there. People who felt like they were abused by power and authority. They were demonized and marginalized. And to that, just to be acknowledged by someone in a position of power is for many people more valuable than money. Now, obviously a lot of people were fired and were economically destitute or just as bad were forced to take an injection they didn't want to to save their livelihoods. But I really think that was a powerful moment. It absolutely was. And I'm, I'm really happy that this is, that this could potentially set the tone going forward for other politicians, that this could be the example. You know, there's a lot of people that were uh, that were taking the the Doug Ford nation. And uh, I just wonder if we're going to hear anything back. I know that they must be talking about it over in Ottawa as well. So mm -hmm. I can imagine that this would also upset some people in government, um, having somebody speak out so openly and to apologize, especially. It's really interesting to think about what this will do going forward. I think this might be uh, a domino effect. I hope so. You know, one of the things that was so salient about the last two years is the forced artificial unanimity. The media silenced any dissenting voices. Social media silenced any dissenting voices. The College of Physicians and Surgeons silenced any dissenting voices. And there were no alternatives offered by any opposition parties, either federal or provincial level. So that fake unanimity had a real you know, it was a propaganda, it was a cult-like effect that you cannot challenge the dominant way of thinking. And to have a premier of a, of a significant province say, no, not only am I not on board, but it was so wrong, I'm apologizing for it. 
I think it breaks the false consciousness that everyone was agreed on this. The second part of what she said was even more interesting because, of course, uh, the bureaucracy, the Justice Department, the police, the prosecutors are still carrying forward abusive charges and tickets and prosecutions from the lockdown era. We know that because we're representing through the Democracy Fund a great number of people. Some of the more famous cases are Arthur Pavlovsky, Church on the Vine, a restaurateur called Chris Scott from Mirror, Alberta, a bunch of truckers and coots. So there are hundreds, maybe thousands. I mean, we don't even know how many they are. And so here you have a premier saying, I apologize for the lockdowns. At the same time as you have her bureaucracy prosecuting the lockdowns. Well, you can't really do both. I thought it was very interesting that Danielle Smith, she was looking seriously at calling off the dogs. And I think that this was exactly the question that needed to be imposed from the very beginning is what is the timeline? When can we expect these changes to be made? Because it doesn't make sense to be prosecuting people for regulations and restrictions that no longer exist across Canada. It's been, what, just a month, just over a month since like uh, travel restrictions went back to normal, no more masks on planes, etc. cetera. Um, and look how long that took as opposed to the rest of the world. Yeah. So again, what she did here, I think will have a huge ripple effect and I mean, I'm excited. Like we've we've heard politicians talk before about not implementing certain restrictions. Like I'll throw to Jason Kenney saying that he didn't even know what a passport, yeah, sure. um, uh, the the vaccine passport was, and look what happened here. Yeah. So it's nice to hear that um, it's not just something that's going to be changed, but she even gave a timeline within a week. We'll yeah. hear back. So let's see what she has to say then. Yeah, it's very exciting. You know, I want to note one more thing. Of course, I followed this online and I saw your video being republished in Wales by a Welsh political party, in Korean, in Hebrew, by an Israeli political party. I saw this as a precedent being referred to in many languages, in many countries, on many continents. So I really think it was big news. And it was a rebel question that you put. And I, look, I looked at the other media, I thought, are they covering it at all? And I saw the CBC had a tiny mention and one line buried in their story. They're on their own narrative. They don't care about freedom. They, they're trying to diminish this because they don't want this to spread. I thought it was very interesting, the difference between how the CBC covered her answer, because you asked it at a public press conference. So it wasn't just our story. I saw our friends at True North had the story and Western Standard Online had the story and good for them. You asked the question, but it was out there for everyone and the media party didn't want to run with it because they don't like the question or the answer. No, they definitely don't because again, it goes against their own narrative. Yeah. It definitely does. They don't want unity as long as people are separated and divided. They're winning. That's the baseline of their agenda, I believe. I think it's been that way the whole time and I feel very comfortable stating that because the the whole premise of the question and the response was perfect. And it absolutely was a rebel question. And the fact that, you know, it just also goes to show that beyond mainstream media, beyond legacy media, including independent media like Rebel and like True North, like Western Standard, there is huge potential for this to be somewhat of a of a of a partnership you know, going forward. 
hmm. will ask good questions. And, you know, again, I just can't wait to see what happens within the week, what she does with this. Yeah, I, I wouldn't use the word partnership. I might say symbiosis. And but because we hold everyone to account and we never get too friendly with politicians, but we put mm -hmm. genuine questions and she gave a genuine answer. That's exactly how it's supposed to work with the media. Um I, I thought that was a great moment. And I, uh, by the way, it was wonderful seeing how, I was there for a couple of days. Uh, it was wonderful seeing how Rebel News, you, me, Sheila Gunn-Reed were received in the Conservative Party, United Conservative Party. And the thing is, I didn't know it would be that way because we have spent two years criticizing them pretty vigorously. And I think we wobbled things enough that Jason Kenney really walked the plank. So I thought, well, are they going to be mad at us? Are they like it was the opposite? I felt as warmly welcomed there as even at a Rebel News event. So I think people there were grateful for a freedom-oriented, independent, no government money journalism, and it was a pleasure to be there. Celine, congratulations on a huge uh, viral uh, story that I think led the world news. So congrats. Thanks very much. Yeah, no, we were definitely received warmly. And I think it's just because people agreed with us the whole time, regardless of who was in charge. So thanks for having me. Appreciate right it. Right on. There you have it. Celine Glass, a young rebel news reporter based in Calgary. Stay with us. Uh, more ahead. Hey, welcome back. Your letters, Bill Cox says, uh, Christians and Muslims may not see the eye to eye on many things. On this, however, I think both groups agree this transgender and homosexuality stuff does not belong in the public school system at all. If a child is confused about anything, that child should be talking with the parents and no one else. Well, I think that's my biggest beef here is heterosexual or homosexual or transgender or whatever. Why are you talking to children of tender years? Why are you talking to grade schoolers, to grade one kids? Why are you of any sexuality. It's just bizarre, and it is so close to pedophilia in my mind. Mac Mama Hammer says, I am so sorry, Mr. Peckford. I'm so disheartened that if the courts can treat you like this, what hope is there for us? That's a reference to the fact that Brian Peckford's lawsuit against the travel ban was struck down. Well, it wasn't struck down. Let me correct my language. The court said they will not hear it because it is now moot because it's over, even though, of course, it wreaks tremendous havoc in the country, and it's only suspended, not re revoked. Sheepster says, the Canadian Constitution and Charter have been conveniently flexed to suit the narrative since its inception. I'm glad more people are starting to notice. Listen, when I went to law school, it really was upheld above the Bible by school. Professors and judges said it's the essential defining document. I haven't seen that. We really needed that Charter of Rights the last two years. Show me where it was used to protect our civil liberties. It's called the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Show me where our rights and freedoms were protected these past two years using this document. You will find nothing. Heartbreaking. Well, that's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. Keep fighting for freedom.